Welcome to a Words, Beats, and Life podcast. This episode features the Beautifully Uncomfortable Discussion Series. Hello, everyone. Happy Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us for Bird Beats and Life version of Beautifully Uncomfortable. This is a talk show that brings a new level of awareness to difficult and or confusing topics. However uncomfortable it may be to listen to, watch, share, and or engage, our hope is that a beautiful understanding will emerge from the panel members as well as our viewers. Thank you. So today we're joined by a wonderful panel uh, as we're talking and excavating a conversation and discourse on a topic that I think is is certainly frontal mind right now and has stays in, in conversation around toxic relationships. Uh, we have a number of talented panelists uh, who have great perspective and wisdom that they are going to be sharing on what are toxic relationships, how to recognize them, how to mitigate them, and navigate them, um, and also how to identify what is healthy behaviors. So I'm going to bring my panelists into view here, um, and we'll start introducing folks in the round, but uh, thank you so much again for joining. And uh, this is, I should note, one uh, conversation in a series of many. Uh, we started this talk show uh, last year during the pandemic. Um, uh, and we are returning this year and sort of looking for uh, other topics that we'll be bringing into view. So stay tuned and subscribe to Words Beats on Live YouTube channel if you haven't to stay uh, engaged and up to speed on, on next things. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Um, let me, I, I feel like I can I can introduce you all, but you're all such a bevy of talented uh, and really, uh, really smart, brilliant folks. And I want you to do justice of sort of introducing yourself. Um, hello to RBI, DJ RBI, who helps to... Uh, curate this uh, show and also produces this podcast, so or this talk show, rather. Um, so, hello. Thank you so much for checking in. In the meantime, before I get distracted, uh, let's go in the, in the uh, I guess, in the order that you are on my screen. So, AJ Throwback, let's start with you. All right. Peace, everybody. My name is uh, AJ Throwback. I'm an all-around creative. I think that's probably the best way to put it. You know, I could have all the slashes, but, you know, I do a little bit of everything. Uh, recording artist producer um radio guy um a <laughs> little bit of everything uh dj you know content creator all that good stuff so yeah that's that's me wonderful thank you so much for joining us today and bringing your wisdom and thoughts uh kylie too smart Hello, I'm Kylie Too Smart. Um, I am a health educator as well as a neuromuscular massage therapist. Um, I do also have a podcast called Lady Blurred Sings the Blues that I co-host with Prowess on and uh, Sometimes V, our other lovely partner who can be here today uh, because she is Sometimes V, always busy. Um, so a little bit about me, that's, that's what I do. I come, I talk, I educate, I help people heal. So it's like, you help me help you. And I can't wait for today's discussion. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. I love your slogan of catch these hands uh, for the <laughs> massages. Uh, tell us about yourself. Hi, everybody. Yeah, so I hail from the Bay Area originally. Uh, I worked in the game industry and live music for a while back in the early 10s, doing a lot of things with uh, video games uh, and bringing music together. Uh, I ran an event for about five years called Rockage, uh, bringing that up for a while, a big old three-day festival and doing a bunch of different shows here and there and live music. And these days I you know, do a lot more back-end things, helping out with technical production, I uh, helped out on uh, Lady Blurts for a little bit, helping them with their back end for a while and, you know, doing things like that. Most of my stuff nowadays is much more behind the scenes. All the voices behind the scenes. And um, last but not least, I want to shed some light on Jay Mills, who uh, is joining us as well. It's just a wonderful talent who I love. So, yes, Jay Mills, share some background on all of the many things that you do. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, y'all? Jay Mills, the real Jay Mills on everything. I got my start with music um, back in 2005 and later transitioned into working in the cannabis industry. First Black woman to manage a cultivation center. I also managed a medical dispensary in DuPont Circle. Um, now I'm a cannabis entrepreneur and I feel like I'm bringing it all full circle past the J. Uh, looking forward to bringing music and the culture, and I feel like I'm bringing accountability to these brands that are profiting on our culture and making sure that, you know, our, our next moves are our best moves. Wonderful. Thank you all again so much for joining us. Um, as you've heard, I think in the audience, if you're listening, this is such a talented panel. As I mentioned, all brilliant folks who really have a lot to contribute. So I want to sort of start um, and go around the table. Uh, there's a round table to talk about, again, our topic on toxic relationships and um, cultivating, I think, a conversation on all the different uh, aspects of toxic relationships, whether they're intimate, um, romantic relationships or partnerships or workplace. Um, so let's, uh, I would love to hear a, a conversation around how we define a toxic relationship, but I wanted to sort of shed a little light from a definition I picked up from um, what is described by the National Domestic Violence Hotline, um, as well as what the American Psychiatric Association described and so I joined those two definitions together and it says a toxic relationship exists when one of partners act maliciously, either consciously or subconsciously to hurt themselves, the relationship or their partner. Um, and so in short, that is how it's described according to sort of the scholarly accepted version. Um, can we go around the round table a little bit and everyone shed for you, what does a toxic relationship? AJ, let's start with you. The way that I, the way that I look at it is... Um, is a lot like how you look at, say, like water or you look at fire. Both of those things, um, when in moderation, can be beneficial. But both of those things, when they are to the extreme, can kill you. You know what I'm saying? Or they can cause really serious harm to you. You know, like you think about water. You can drown in water or you can drink too much water and drown inwardly. Same thing with fire. Fire can be something that's used to heat. It could be something that's used to cook. But when it's not controlled, it's something that goes, that can destroy so many different things in its path. I look at toxic relationship in the same way. 
if not controlled, if not contained, if not done in a healthy or beneficial way, then it's something that can destroy not only the people that are directly involved in the relationship, but anybody who's in close enough to the peripheral of the relationship itself. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Kylie, you're next on my screen, so I'm going to go to you. That means for you. Um, I, I feel like toxicity in relationships, it's, we get this idea of like a, a permanence, right? But I feel like it's a, a kind of a flow state of being because you can move from a state of healthy relationships to a state of toxic relationship back to a state of healthy relationship. And so for me, toxicity is, is really when your the balance in your relationship isn't there. If you feel like you are constantly not being heard, if the boundaries that you put out are not being respected, if you feel demeaned or attacked or just unsupported in that relationship, then I feel like that is what makes it toxic. It's harmful to your energy, harmful to your mind, how you may think about yourself because we are absorbing the world, right? So, and absorbing our conversations and the energy that you have with a person. So if that dynamic now is one that is enforcing negative ideas within you, then I think that that is a relationship that is toxic to your system. Uh Thank you for that insight. Yes, totally agree with a lot of what is being said here. Uh, Devane, please share your, your thoughts on this, what this means for you. Be happy to. So uh, as somebody who's been on both ends of the uh, positive and I guess toxic spectrum of relationships from like romantic and friendly and workplace, you know, I, I agree with um, what's been said thus far, like the idea that it flows or it's like water or like things go in and out and very, it's very dependent on either, you know, your particular status inside or outside of, of, you know, that particular relationship, whatever happens to be. But I I definitely can uh, say that from, you know, from what I've experienced uh, in my very short 29 years of life, that uh, it takes um, a lot of inward issues uh, for that to start really like, affecting like your relationship as a whole or any of the ones that you have, like it, I, like even the description that you gave about, you know, the official description of uh, from like professional description, like, yeah, no, it's, it's about, you know, destroying, you know, um, the, the other person involved or the relationship itself or trying to do malicious harm. Um, it, it is, it is very overt and it, 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 goes in and out you know depending on like where you're at and um you know i I probably say like one of the biggest determinants is whether or not it persists in the first place is communication i mean i think that's probably one of the tantamount things that brings that out is just like if there is little to no communication or poor communication like that's that's probably going to be one of the biggest if not the biggest factor and that even propagating in the first place yes Absolutely. Thank you for for explaining something new a little bit around the time and duration (laughs) um, that's not included in that definition, I noticed. Um, And Jay Mills, uh, share with us what that uh, definition means for you. Um, When I think of a toxic relationship, I think of the the inverse and the opposite word, which would be a healthy relationship, right? And that to me is what helps to identify what makes something toxic when it, when it isn't bringing you good health, 
this can be different for different people. You know, like the song says, some people want to be used. Some people want to be abused. These things are toxic from a ultimate point of view. But as was earlier stated, you know, a relationship can be toxic at one point and then can move forward to a healthy point, you know, um, knowing when something is, is ultimately toxic, when a person is a cancer to you, when, when it's truly unsalvageable is a very personal choice that, you know, you just got to move with the universe and know when some, when someone is not the one for you, there's a billion people, you know, they might be the seven, they might be the four, they might be the 22 or the two, but toxicity is just, you know, some people want to be smothered with love. They need text messages every, every day. They need to see you every day. And if, if they're not getting that level of attention, then they may feel like something is wrong where someone else is like, I, I don't even want to sleep with the person that I marry. I would like for us to have two beds or two bedrooms and we have a his and a her and we just kind of get together sometimes, you know, there's, there's something mm -hmm. for everybody. You know, you can't yes. look at what something else is. You have to really just be in touch with yourself. And you might be the toxic one if you can't do that. <laughs> so be Some people don't even know. They're, they're yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm so glad. Listen, I am. I love that uh, whole entire conversation around juxtaposing healthy relationships because that is not something that the American Psychiatric Association nor the National Domestic Violence Hotline even, even conditioned it against, which is like interesting. They're just defining it with no context. And then the idea around self-inventory and self-reflection, which I was going to mention, um, I saw there's a, a question here around um, can an industry be toxic? And and I and I want to give some context to that because I'd love for it for that to be answered by um, everyone since you all are part of different industries. I mean, Jay Mills, you're definitely multi layered in in a number of industries. Um, how can an industry be toxic? I mean, it doesn't have to appeal to a, an animate <laughs> animate thing. It can be something inanimate or conceptual. What do you What do you say, Jay Mills? I'm going to start with you. <laughs> industry be toxic? Yes. An industry can be toxic in many different ways. It's interesting because, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was pineapples, you know, and how they mm -hmm. killed the Hawaiians and we colonized that island for that fruit. Cotton. The meat industry. Mm -hmm. The business of milk and hospitals. There are sinister people at the top of, of these industries that should be doing more. And then you have something like cannabis, which has these moral different feelings that people have attached to it. And you have people who are trying to do good things within this industry. You have this rare industry where from the beginning, people are demanding accountability. Like, again, look at cotton. No one's not demanding accountability of cotton on behalf of the facts that obviously this industry is based on. Where's the social accountability? Where are you investing in uh, Fruit of the Loom? What are you doing, Levi's? Like, we don't, but with cannabis, we're like, hey, nah, what y'all doing? Where is it right now? You know? Yes. So you look at the hip hop music industry, 
you know, and the the image that is that is being pushed for black men and black women, the boxes that they put the money behind that they flood and make sure, you know, we hear 24-7, you know, is is hip hop bad? Of course not. Not innately, you know, but the people who are at the top and who are trying to push the agenda, you know, is man, America as an idea in actuality, and then there's the people in power. Very interesting question, you know. Yes. Um, I, I love that you <laughs> indicated all of that industrial, uh, toxins and uh, uh, toxic culture and the notion of, of all of the disenfranchisement that's happened, um, across all these different industries that you brought out and consumerism and everything else. And, um, I want to go to really quickly, we are joined, uh, Priest and Nomad is joining us just a bit deferred here, but, um, we didn't get to introduce him, but I would love Priest introduce yourself. And then if you could talk about what your perspective is on toxic industries or especially in the hip hop space, um, my name is Priest of Nomad. Um, I am a uh, hip hop artist, MC, uh, producer, engineer, uh, and uh, from the DC area, man, and uh, part of the DC hip hop scene, U Street art scene, um, in many ways. And um, as far as um, the toxic toxicity of the industry, I mean, all industries pretty much are based on what our whole financial system is here is just capitalism so that in a sense is is toxic you know what i'm saying so capitalizing off uh others misfortune to build your own empire so to speak um uh the music industry of course um which i know <laughs> all too well is probably one the one of the most toxic industries um it was uh, like a lot of industries is founded founded with uh, illegal criminal money money, and a lot of the players were, you know, mafia, uh, underwhelms under currency society and all that. So, you know, there's a whole set of rules, whole different set of rules when it comes to uh, those cats, man. So, um, misogyny um, and uh, you know, racism and all this stuff and. And that's just not just hip hop. That's just the music industry, period, right? Um, and uh, the underlying force of it all, of course, is white inferiority. I can't say white supremacy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So um, that whole thing, that whole agenda, uh, which is why we have the imagery about, you know, black women and men and boys and children and stuff. Um, the negative uh, stuff is the one that's stuff to get gets pushed because it serves a greater agenda. So. Um, definitely, definitely toxic. And the way that deals get done, the way that, you know, so many things happen, um, is toxic. So, um, the beautiful thing about all of that, um, balance is that, um, the industry has somewhat imploded. So it's given opportunities for, you know, other artists such as myself, independent artists who, who've always been about just getting the music to the people and, and having our own relationships with fan bases and stuff like that. So, um, it's a, it's a hard fight, but, um, state change starts with your corner. So. Absolutely. Um, I think we may have lost Jamil. She'll come back. I'm sure, uh, 
in a sec. But in the meantime, I'm going to add a little bit to this question um, as I get ready to ask you, AJ, throwback in terms of media consumption. And uh, Jay Mills and Priesta Nomad have kind of pointed out this consumerism aspect in terms of what is kind of considered to be, I guess, what's pushed to the public. Um, And I think about, right, like as we're talking about how we're describing some of those toxic relationships, it seems that we are very much served and serviced with a lot more of the toxic relationships um, in the public sphere. So we don't, I mean, what does healthy relationships, right, are not oftentimes showcased. And even when they are, it seems that there is a, you know, a a gossip mag or blog or something waiting behind the scenes to catch those folks in the act of some sort of, you know, malicious or salacious types of things. Can you talk about that a little bit about what your how do you view that? It's like this really interest, I think, from consumer behavior that says we want to be fed the, you know, give us this bad stuff. Give us, J- you know, Will Smith smacking the, the folks and Jada on the red table, you know, when Will Smith crying. Give us that. What does that look like for you? Well, one of the things I always think about, because um, this is something that I addressed in a comment regarding something that actually Beyonce had to say about how people don't make albums anymore. But one of the things that I said in my response to the person that posted it was that the consumer has to bear some responsibility in the whole thing as well. One of the things I always go back to is I'll never forget when Mary J. Blige, um, I forget which album it was she put out, but whatever album it was where she was actually talking about being happy and like, things were going good in her life. That's when people were like, I don't know if I like this Mary J. Blige. And it's like, really? (laughs) I'm like, she's finally like in a good place. And it's like, you can't celebrate that. You know what I mean? Like you want, you want my life Mary all the time. And you know, it's, it's this thing that we're constantly being fed the negative. And if you're constantly being fed a certain thing after a while, that's what you have an appetite for. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's the whole thing of, if you have the choice between picking an apple and a piece of cake, which one are you more than likely going to lean toward? You know what I'm saying? Especially if you're constantly being fed cake, if you're constantly being fed sweets, if you're constantly being fed junk food, you're going to lean toward the junk food. And then on top of that, I also look at it as a thing of emotional connection. What's the thing that you have to, you can detach a little bit more emotionally from you can detach a little bit more emotionally from something that's bad versus something that's good. Because if something is good, that means you have to embrace whatever is or is not going good in your own life. And so as a consumer, it's easier a lot of times to gravitate toward that thing that's negative, unfortunately. So to me, yeah, we're being fed certain things, but at the same time as consumers, we have to be more cognizant and say, okay, I know this is bad. I know this is good. Which one am I going to lean toward the most? Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because I feel like there's a trend here that has not, I've noticed at least in my readings, that has not been brought up a lot around that self-reflection and how, you know, you are individually responsible for consuming or, you know, sort of partaking in a culture of toxicity. Um, and then I think you brought up also an idea around to me that, that Jay Mills talked about earlier around like, what is the, the responsibility that self, self-responsibility? 
What's the sort of emotional response to when something is toxic? How do you fix it? I think Carlos may have cut out there. Oh, no. Right? But (laughs) emotional accountability, uh, I think, is kind of what she was going for uh, in reference to um, what Jay was talking about earlier, which is, you know, I think it's easier to see negative things on TV and accept them because if those are the types of behaviors that you're reflecting in your own life, it makes it seem like, oh, you're not as bad or you may not have um, the motivation or feel the shame necessarily to address the internal traumas that you have um, to fix them. I know, Devane, you had like your hands up. Points, points to Devane. You have something to say. Oh, did I? Oh, maybe, yeah. maybe it was just you reacting. Like, oh. Maybe it was. I don't know. But I mean, I mean, if you're if, if you pass it to me, I can. I, yeah, I'll pass it to you. Uh, so yeah, the oh god. So the uh, amount of I think I think the word I'm looking for is uh, intentional gatekeeping that is kind of banked off of what has been seen like the 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 controversy and the negativity from like the from the focus we have on like different industries all, has a lot to do with like how that propagates i mean from being in you know the very small part of the music industry i was in like live music um i could i could tell for you know the five years i was in it five plus years i saw people uh both who i was working with and even just people who were attending who just got to know me over time they would be one day saying, oh man, this is so great. Oh, it's all positive and all good vibes and whatnot. But the literal second that something went wrong or something that went awry with maybe like a band or a practice or something that just ended up not happening in somebody's private life that it was in the community, all of a sudden it's like, oh, we have to know more about this information. Not only that, but we're going to be holding it personally, even though we have nothing to do with it. And I, and the, and the further and further that went, it was just like, you know, there wasn't really much of a sense to why that would like, like logically why people would want to keep that negativity going. Cause most of the time, you know, if it's just, you know, industry things, you know, people just buying experiences, products, it's like, okay, do your thing and then get out as long as everything is safe and the up and up. But you know, they, a lot of people, uh, I still started to want to bring that home with them or bring that to discussions on the internet and using that to, you know, be uh, a menace online or in people's lives. And a lot of that, at least in my opinion, I started to realize that a lot of that happened because people wanted to have a certain status quo because the negativity or the thing that happened that had that spotlight on that particular thing was going to mess with it in some way. It was going to end up upending something that, made their little world not be that way anymore and then it was like oh man well we have to go into that and put a spotlight on that so we can make sure that this stays the same and i I really feel like a lot of a lot of that that you know that that toxicity really comes from i mean you even mentioned like in the hip-hop industry i mean technically speaking that that's been happening even before i was born like you know even not even just at the top you know, even just from people who are actually performing at the top, people who are trying to get into the game, you see people all the time being like, oh, hey, here's this new hot noise that people are trying to get into. Are people are liking on the ground floor level, but the guys at the top is like, no, I'll push that to the side because right now we're one's at the top of the game and if they do that, then we have to follow suit to that sound or something we have to change, some kind of, you know, industry practice we have or whatever. And like, God, it's such a very, uh, in my opinion, very uh, 
important thing to kind of put a spotlight on and whatnot. And just yeah. like that idea of like keeping the status quo and not kept keeping out anything else and, and, and very much like using negativity as a means to, you know, continue that kind of, that kind of negative pr- progress as, as much as I would like to find a different word for that. Yes. Thank you so much. I saw uh, some interesting uh, text. I don't know what that was from from one of our viewers, but thank you for sharing uh, your bars with us. I <laughs> I don't know how really? to respond to that, but <laughs> I, was about to say, I saw that too. Uh, I was like, wait, hold on. Like, oh yes, that ties in perfectly with the conversation of control. You know? <laughs> But what I was what I was going to say exactly, Kylie, you got it, and maybe you can start this off for me because I was going to say in an online environment, and we're, I mean, there has been so much that has the the pandemic I think has brought, uh, you know, brought to to mind and how we do our work, how we organize, how we communicate. Um, virtual spaces have enabled a lot of that to continue, but it also seems to be a natural breeding ground for for a lot of those toxic behaviors, right? For, you know, narcissism and uh, a lot of the triggers, uh, manipulation, you know, gaslighting, a lot of the things that would consider to be toxic behaviors seem to incubate an an online setting. So Kylie, can you talk about uh, that a little bit around what, how do we recognize or, or really navigate being in an online setting and dealing with all these types of, of, of personalities that you may not even know, may even have undiagnosed um, mental health uh, issues where it's like, how do you handle that process if you don't know if someone, if they don't even know that they may have these, these concerns. So um, talk to us a little bit about that. Ooh, uh, that is such a great one. I think a lot of it um, really comes back to um, emotional intelligence Right. Being aware um, of how your actions affect others and also being aware of how you yourself are are being affected by that action. Right. So we can only give so much power to somebody else in terms of how we react to something. Um, If you have the maturity, if you have the wherewithal to understand that you are responsible for your reactions and also recognizing if somebody is attacking you purposefully to get a reaction that the most control that you can take in that situation is now how you react, right? Um, Whether it be blocking this person, whether it be reporting, whether it be um, literally in the moment. And if you have, I'll say the, the power and the strength in the moment to stand up for yourself, if you feel like that is needed, um, most of the time it really just comes down to calling out a behavior. It's like, this may not be the appropriate space for this, or this may not be the decorum for this. Because a lot of times people, like you said, it's online and you don't come into a space necessarily having the, the rules on the board of these are the house rules, right? Sometimes people will have that discussion beforehand, but if you're on social media, right, people are applying their own levels of rules, their own level of comfort in the relationships that they share with the people around them. And also have a level of protection with, speaking on a screen or behind a screen and they don't necessarily have to face the ramifications of somebody looking at them face to face, seeing either the hurt that they've caused or the anger that they've caused, or there's someone who's like very isolated and that may be the only interaction that they know how to get is to be an aggravation instead of somebody who 
has something to contribute. And I think a lot of that boils down to also low self-esteem, right? If you don't feel like you have something positive to contribute, well, I'll get this attention from my negative behavior. So a lot of that, I think, is, is really something that comes with maturity and, and self-reflection and just um, having respect, not just for yourself, but for the people around you, which is yeah. wild when you think of people who purposefully manipulate just for their, their own selves. You just learn how to become powerful in your rejection of those ideas. Yes, or trolling. Trolling, oh, the trolling. Which I was going to get, because all of you are content creators. And I wonder if we can even just go around again to talk about, because, I mean, you all curate things on online and in virtual spaces and also sort of in face-to-face, in-person experiences. And, you know, we the what does that, do, is there a difference in how you navigate your online experiences and, you know, deal with those personalities versus in person? Um, uh, Jay Mills, why don't you go next? Because I think you're on my screen, but uh, and then we'll go back around <laughs> from there. Navigating uh, <laughs> interesting personalities online, man, it's it's. We were talking about online, but I, I was really just thinking about how hard it is to be faithful these days and how people really prey on your happiness. Misery loves company. And it applies really to to both of these things in that effect right there, that misery loves company. You know, shout out to real life over everything. And that's how I deal with it. You know, I come from the unplug in real life. People talk. And they say a lot of things that they wouldn't say in real life. And at the same time, online presents you with opportunities to to interact with people that you would never see in the streets. It definitely takes a certain strength of character to be able to tune in and tune out to what's going on online, you know, and not feed in. And know when someone is miserable and just wants your company in their misery. I don't, I don't, I ain't finna argue. <laughs> I can't argue with you. You mad. <laughs> you mad. And, and Priest, I'm going to turn to you because I feel like you just recently celebrated this huge milestone, amazing milestone of being 30 years in this industry. And I mean, what. Now, right, we're kind of thrust into this environment where we've had to navigate the the metaverse, the in real, you know, in real world, as Jay Mill said, preferring that IRL experience and then the digital virtual world that we're kind of just the 2.0 web. How have you managed to navigate all of that? And what does the toxicity look like in each one of those spaces for you? (laughs) Um, man. First of all, I'm, a, I'm I'm speaking from a Generation X lens, all right. So um, that in itself is a is a is a specialty in a sense because we grew up a certain way. You know what I'm saying? One of the things that we always had uh, growing up in social circles is we had accountability, right? If you talk to someone crazy, you know, boy or girl, anybody talk to someone crazy. You push them out of say, you push them out the way, step on their shoe or something without saying, excuse me, you got dealt with. You know Talks what I'm saying? You, you got, you got your, your, yeah, you got them, you got them paws put upon you. 
real quick. Um, and, you know, when we grew up, it was, you know, uh, a, a, a sister was quick to hit you, just uh, punch you in the face. It's like a dude was. So, like, that's how we grew up. And I knew, me and my wife talked about this a long time ago, like years ago, when, when a lot of the uh, social media stuff started happening, there's going to be a, a whole, a lack of social etiquette education, right? And social cues and etiquette of how, you know, when you're in a workplace, you know how to act certain ways. And, you know, there's always that coworker that you have to put in place and things like that. And uh, there's so many different situations like that, right? But online, especially with the pandemic, especially after the Trump era too, uh, where a lot of, you know, while white people start feeling themselves and started really saying, oh, we could do this, we could do that, we could call the police and everything will be straight. Uh, you know, what they don't realize that real dudes, real niggas don't care about the police. You know? We'll touch you before the police come. You know what I'm saying? You might be, if you call the police, that means you're threatening my life. So, you know, you might call the police, but you ain't going home. You know what I'm saying? Um, mm -hmm. I had a song on my, I had a song on my last project called Pump Faking. Uh, with a video and everything. And then that, that really talked about this whole situation where uh, people are get really King Kong behind the keyboard. You know what I'm saying? Real Twitter fingers behind the keyboard and start saying stuff to you that they know they wouldn't have. If I was in the face of some of these dudes, I know they, you know, I know they Twinkie feeling. So I know Slims, they wouldn't come like that if I was there. You know what I'm saying? So um thing is, is that it gets seen though. Like, Especially if you're in the same area. I say on the song, it's like what you didn't know with your, you know, you talked about this joke, you know, your, your dude was five blocks from your baby mama house. <laughs> so you went around there and, and now it's a Timberland party on your back molar. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's the area I come from, Slim. Uh, you know, we whooped dudes. We whooped dudes and was friends afterwards. You know what I'm saying? We knew, you knew yeah. that if you stepped out of pocket, you my man, but I might have to whoop you, Slim. And then we there's no hard feelings. Like this is just the way we are. We gotta roll a certain way. We cut from a certain cloth. You know what I'm saying? And I think that a combination of uh political climate plus pandemic, um, and plus a lot of people do generations, this is all they know. They don't know having that accountability. They never got punched in the face. You know what I'm saying? So they don't know that accountability, Slim. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, in the 90s, I had situations where dudes was talking about me and, and crew and stuff like that. And, you know, I hear rumors and stuff. And I wind up seeing one of the Jews in front of the black cat one time. Me and Kokai, Kokai, oh my shit, man. Let me, let me step the slip, you know, real quick. Oh, it was a totally different, totally different vibe. You know what I'm saying? And that's missing. <laughs> I think right now where um, there's no accountability for action. Um, for on, on a lot of different levels, and um, I'm 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 like Jay, man. I'm not going. I'm not going to argue with you, Slim. Like you start talking crazy on my posts, and I'm like, all right, Slim. I'm just going to block you. And I don't have the time for that because I'm not about that energy. Because I'm not going to tap into that side of myself. So I'm, I'm I'm not scared of what I will do. I'm scared of what I won't do. Mm. I'm gonna overdo it. I'm that dude. I overdo it. And yeah, I come from that. Like I'm a maniac, Slim. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm I've worked on me for like the last 20 years. I'm trying to be a better dude, better husband, better father. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to tap into that side of myself. 
Right. But you will be accountable. You know what I'm saying? Somehow, yeah. some way. And I think that if people start getting held to be more accountable, then, you know, what happens is behaviors change and stuff like that. And I think that's what's missing is the lack of accountability. So, my Yes. Priest, you hit so many things on the head. I, I And I saw Devane really actively <laughs> engage with a lot of which like maybe a lot of us grew up with that talk ish, get hit kind of uh, kind of uh, background. But at the same time, I feel like the kind of we still go into recent situations where it is being able to militarize the police or use that against, you know, especially in a cultural context against black people. And then I, I think about something, Devane, before you communicate, I want to just give an example of a friend recently who went to go defuse another friend's sort of relationship, an argument uh, in a domestic situation. And she had, you know, was trying to tell her friend to call the police because this, her boyfriend was a, you know, a New York uh, fire department, fire uh, chief or something like that. Someone top ranking in the fire department. And she was fearing that this is going to not only destroy him, but so many other people who are public uh, officials in this fire department. And just, you know, was like, I adamantly cannot call the police. And he tried to smother her with a pillow. Um, and so, you know, you, you think about like you're questioning saving, you know, that uh, accountability. What does that look like? But can you talk a little bit about that? When does it get dangerous um, being accountable? Because, right, Will Smith went up and smacked Chris Rock. And, you know, some would argue that that was his response to talk ish get hit. But um, tell me a little bit with what you're with all of those things kind of in mind. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not rich enough to deal with rich people problems, to be perfectly honest with you. But when it comes to the things that happen with like Will and stuff like that, and, and Chris, like you know what I there there's I grew I grew up in between the analog and the digital age. Like I, I feel like I'm a little bit on the younger side, being 29, but I grew up in two different worlds, in my opinion, of being like of that world of that respect world that we just got talked about. You know, being like you know talk shit get hit kind of thing, and the world of you know being confident about your anonymity and you know having twitter fingers and, and being a belligerent you know sob so i get it i get both sides uh you know i think i agree with the former more but that idea of them dealing with that stuff i mean yeah i probably shouldn't it, obviously it was a little touch too hard to an extent but honestly if i was even there if i was rich enough to deal with that problem like i'd be like if I even was close to that guy, I'd be like, hey, well, like, look, you justified, but probably should get the hell out of here. <laughs> probably should leave. Just go. Like, you already made things weird enough. Get out of here. Uh, but moving on from that, um, it actually hits me a little close to home, actually, in recent events. Um, I have a um, couple of best friends I've had for, like, about, God, and maybe nearing the eight, eight to nine years at this point. And... Um, there were people who were very, very close to me, you know, I consider them family and on, and they were, they were both, they were, they were married and it really sucked because they had a uh, recent relationship issues that ended up with them uh, getting divorced, which, you know, broke my heart to pieces because I, I was, I was there at their wedding and support them, uh, you know, from day, day one, had, had them live with me for like the beginning of their relationship. It just tore me to shreds and something that, it's very um, re like relevant to you know having like you know this this third uh, person view of, of of you know toxicity in a relationship. I knew them for years. I thought I knew everything 
about them. I thought I front to back, but as some of y'all probably know, and this phrase, like, you don't know what happens behind closed doors. You never do. And even though I was behind some of those closed doors with them, they had more than enough clothes that I didn't see what was going on. There was some crazy stuff going on. I didn't see. There were things for years that I was like inches away from that I didn't cognitively see either because of my own bias or because I didn't want to see it or whatever happened to have you, but I didn't see it. And when I got explained to me later on after they separated, I was like, oh my God, I was right there. I should have seen it the whole time. There's no reason why I didn't see it because there was this evidence here. It was this thing here I could have seen, but I was something happened where I didn't see it. And had I had seen it, oh, you best believe I would have actually pulled either the Masada or actually tried to be like, hey, let's open up a dialogue because I'm worried about you guys. And I feel like to an extent, maybe there were some points I did it, but I know I didn't do it nearly enough to the to the point where I would have felt comfortable doing that and trying to potentially help the outcome, you know, of, of them getting, which obviously wasn't my responsibility to, you know, keep their, the sanctity of the marriage whole. But as somebody who loves them to death, I was like, oh man, like I should have done something. And I, even to this day, you know, I, I'd still been keeping contact with them. Like I, 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 for me, I apologize. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't have more of that, that forward push to try to help. Because had I, had I felt like I did, maybe I could have changed the outcome. I mean, maybe I couldn't, who knows? I'm not a prophet, but I know for a fact that, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, there is a certain extent. It's like, especially if it's going to the extreme, as you mentioned, you know, somebody, you know, potentially smothering somebody with a pillow. Oh my God, I hope it never gets to that extent because it's like way beyond that. Yeah, somebody needs to step in and, you know, be like, hey, let's, maybe we can get you somewhere that's not there. But even to the small extent, it's being like, oh, maybe you guys just argue too much out when we go out or something and you guys are really just, you know, maybe killing the vibe or something like that. And, you know, everyone's, really not lacking the, the you know the presence you're giving up it like maybe you should start there before it even gets to that point you know like for me i'd, I'd much rather try to nip that in the bud earlier if possible and not and being as respectful as i can because like like i mentioned it's not really my job but if you love somebody you want to help you know it's a natural response to be empathetic towards that wonderful thank you so much for catching that aj throwback i um i wanted you to kind of uh, finish off on this topic, but also to kind of bring in what I'm hearing on how do you even, how do you help someone in this space? How do you help yourself when you're in this space? What do you do if you are, how do you break the cycle? Um, can you share a little bit about what your thoughts are on that? Uh, ask the question one more time. I just want to make sure that I answer it. Properly. Sure. Um, how do you, after you've sort of recognized perhaps that you are in a toxic relationship or that someone else is in, in that, whether it's workplace or intimate, um, or friendship, how do you break the cycle? What do you, how do you recognize how to, uh, fix and, and, and navigate how to heal that, um, relationship or is that even possible? It's always possible. Um, I think with a lot of things in life, it comes down to, it comes down to a few things. It comes down to, like you said, I mean, the key thing is recognition. You have to know that it's something that's affecting you. You know, I have to know that it's something that's eating at the core of who you are. It's eating at the fabric of um, how you normally operate, you know, and it's taking you out of your character. Once you realize it's taking you out of your character, then it's a matter of making a choice. You know, like, do you choose to stay in a situation where maybe the person could be working on their toxicity, you know what I'm saying, or their toxic tendencies? Maybe the, the trend is showing that they're not changing their toxic tendencies. And it's a matter of, okay, 
if this person isn't showing me anything different, then I have to make a decision that puts me in a place where I'm in a healthy relationship. And if I don't, and if I don't feel comfortable, comfortable, or if I don't have any assurances that dealing with this person is going to put me in the green, so to say, versus putting me in the red constantly, then it's like, okay, well, then I need to, I need to step more than likely. You know what I'm saying? I need to, and if I keep having conversations, same conversations with this person and they're not changing, then it's like, I have to make a decision that's best for me. And more than likely that is a matter of rolling out. Yes. All, all important things to kind of, again, taking responsibility for that recognition and being accountable to oneself. Um, I thought there was a good question um, that just came in the chat and I would love to spend a few minutes uh, exiting on that. But I wanted to ask as on, and on top of this question, because there's so many neurotransmitters, right. That kind of happen in uh, the science of, of, of all these emotions of toxicity and think about like Sarah, serotonin and dopamine and all these sensations, um, those are the happy hormones, right? Kind of the, those neurotransmitters that help regulate our mood and feelings of pleasure and all of that. But it also can make us addicted to toxicity. So sometimes being able to really recognize it is hard for people. And the question here that was presented was, do some folks just really want to be in a toxic relationship? It keeps happening. They continue to find themselves in that space. Like, where do you get the point where like you are toxic and you need to address you? Um, what do you, I'm going to go back around and see, uh, Kylie, you're, you're first up on my screen. So let's start with you. Sweet. What's wrong with I <laughs> What's wrong with people? No, I had uh, recently watched a documentary. I think it was um, Dr. Ruffles, a neuroscientist and neurosurgeon. And he had talked about the fact that nowadays we can, you know, stimulate certain parts of the brain while the person is awake, ask them what they're feeling. Um, and he had talked about the fact that while we have access, we can, you know, push the button and choose like oh we're, this is a pleasurable feeling or um this is like a funny feeling or laughing feeling he said people more often than not picked the feeling of aggravation and anger and irritation <laughs> instead of the pleasure button like i know if it was me i would probably be like ah oh, yes i just want to feel happy and good most people feel comfortable um feeling angry and i i think it is a lot to do <laughs> with unpacking childhood trauma right and um we had this idea of like accountability earlier and um if you if it's just easier if it feels comfortable if it feels like you're at home to feel unhappy <laughs> to feel stressed to feel angry if you literally don't know what it's like to relax to feel good, to communicate what your needs are with what anybody else's needs are. Um, if you haven't had the exposure to other types of lifestyles, if you haven't talked and opened up because maybe your whole life you've been told, we don't talk about this outside the home, like Devane was saying, behind closed doors, what's in the closet, you don't talk about it, then you don't really get the frame of mind that the world is not how you've experienced it as a reality, as a whole, as a total experience for every other person, right? And if you open your mind in that way, um, you start to learn other things. You start to eat other foods. You start to choose the apple instead of the cake, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that is a, 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 a choice that people make at a certain point to keep being in relationships that don't serve them because it's easier. It doesn't take as much effort to actually self-analyze and say, okay, what are the things that 
I experienced, that I internalized, that I now continue to enact in my day to day. And um, being with someone who is healthy doesn't mean that you're with someone who doesn't challenge you. Right. And I think it's the challenge that's important there. Yes. And and infusing in this, I I love that you shared that around that analogy to just healthy behaviors overall um, and the choices that we make for ourselves. Um, Let me see. Next, I know Jay Mills got caught off for a second. She's back. And so I want to get her conversation on this, too, um, around uh, Jay Mills. We're talking about what when when you recognize or once you recognize that you may be the toxic one um, or how do you recognize that? How do you sort of continue? There's people that continue to end up in these situations. They, you know, one, one toxic relationship to the next because those sort of neurotransmitters that come in and they just get addicted to trauma. They get mm-hmm. addicted. And then uh, Flex Matthews, who also co-produces this show, uh, said that sometimes people learn those toxic traits from childhood. And that's completely normal. Um, and their evolved adulthood is just continuing that. Um, J. Mill, share. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have my phone connected to the charger. That was what happened. And it's weighing it down. And oh, no worries. No worries. How it was set up. But I'm stable now. Um, Look at the growth. You're stable now. <laughs> Speaking of overcoming toxicity, um, I had to come to realize I was the toxic one. Um, I was coping. And when you deal with the percentage of women that have been sexually assaulted and how they cope at what age these things may have happened, you know, words of R. Kelly and what it was exposing in terms of this concept of grooming women. You ask many women, many beautiful women, many women with certain types of bodies, how old were they the first time a man tried to sexually approach them? It was sickening you, you know, to, to know this. But I can also say the flip side for men and understanding and overstanding is even sicker then because at least people feel sick when someone's like, oh, man, 10 years old, grown men at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. By the time she's 16, 18 years old. God bless her. (laughs) The things that she has gone through is crazy. And sometimes it's easier to choose the wrong thing than it is to analyze that what happened to you was was wrong. You know, you can be surrounded by so much toxicity, so many other girls who are dating grown men that you don't know what's happening. You have, I, I see, you know, these these songs and this image that's, that's being put out and these young girls with these weaves and these eyelashes in middle school and high school and the attention that they are trying to, to, to get. And I see where the end is. You got hurt, bitter women who wasted their 20s turning up and trying to get paid when they didn't know that they was priceless. And the coping that comes with this, the cognitive dissonance. You don't want to accept and take accountability for your own actions and what what you did. And at the same time, maybe you start feeling angry and resenting these men. So what happens when you were young and the men who were giving you attention were doctors and lawyers and nice upstanding men? What if they were your pastor or someone at your church? What if they was a mentor? What if they were someone that you looked up to? who spoke wisdom, who you trusted, and who took advantage of you. If 
fucks with your brain. It causes a trigger to when you meet a good man, you can't see it as good. He's a villain to you. And what actually is easier to deal with is a broken man. At least he's up front with his brokenness. At least he's telling me the truth. At least I know why it is that he is this way. It becomes this vicious, vicious, vicious cycle. We are hurt. A lot of us are hurt. We are hurt people, hurting people, hurting people. You have the women who become the monsters that hurt them. That's that's where that's where we at right now. Like I can I can do it better. I'm gonna cheat first. I'm not even gonna get my heart involved in this because you know Coach, Daddy Shorts is bad. <laughs> <laughs> the the city girls up one uh dies. <laughs> oh, oh Jay Mills, you have you have gotten really deep into I think a conversation that we we could even explore on a whole different conversation, but um five hours later. One more story though. Please. Please, Because when yeah. you were talking about stepping in, I got to tell a story of my best friend. We born on the same day, May 31st. Really, really loved her. She was doing Gemini's. a very toxic Gemini <laughs> season. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> she was dealing with the guy who was abusive. I knew it. I She didn't want to leave. I tried to say everything. Be a safe space. She just wouldn't leave. But I told her, you know, if you ever need me, call me. I'll be right there. You know, we hadn't been together for months. When she did call me, and I came over and she was like, she's finally ready to leave. And then her dude came and is like, you know, trying to put his hands on her. I stepped in and that's how I ended up with a black eye. This man yeah. was six, six and hit me in my face like I was a whole grown man. And I'm but one story of somebody <laughs> trying to save somebody who did not want to be saved. Yes. And... I think that's what paralyzes a lot of people into inaction because you can die. <laughs> if he'll beat the woman he loves, what you think he will do to you? He don't even know you. Right. Can I weigh in on this? I know we're wrapping up. The type of man that's that angry to do that to that one is the same type that's just out of control. Period. Yes. Um, we're, we're going to go over a little bit. So Kylie, um, let's toss to you and then, and then priest, I, I really want to hear from you as a, as a father, as a parent on this, that perspective too. Um, so Kylie, go ahead. And, and I think my experience will tie into that because my experience with my, my first introduction to toxic relationships with the relationships that I had with my parents, you know, both of my parents, when I was growing up were addicts. Um, my mother's clean now. She's got like 20 years clean. Um, but my father is still very much active in his addiction and it's been my entire life. So growing up homeless, growing up in violent situations, living um, out of crack houses and learning and seeing and being exposed to all of these behaviors that became the norm. Right. And so later in life, it, became difficult for me to judge when something was truly good because the norm was trash. The norm was terrible. That should never be anybody's norm, right? Um, and so when we talk about toxicity and we talk about examining our own behaviors, um, I think it's 
important to understand that where you come from does not necessarily define you in all of your ways. And the struggles that you go through will lend you some strengths that you probably never even knew that you had and that your story will help somebody. So speak up. And that's all I got to say about that. Perfect. Yes. Um, thank you for your transparency on that. I I was noting in the in the chat between us, but I think the conversation on like that evolved norm, right? We we kind of developed that inaction happens a lot because I simply don't know better. And that story around like when you how do you recognize something if you have never seen it, you know, and and uh if you've not seen it, at least on TV, <laughs> there's so many things that we see that might not even be real anymore. We, we've lost a lot of those values that are even presented in media, as we talked about earlier, the kind of consumerism that our culture has been hyper-focused on, the negative and toxic experiences. Um, Priest, I, I want to go to you and AJ Throwback to both of you are parents, but um what do you say about this as a parent? How do you teach your children how to recognize <clears throat> these, these things? And I mean, early on, as, as Jay Mills said, people start grooming young girls, you know, as early as possible, younger and younger, five and six. How do, what do you say to your, to your children? Well, I speak from a, a couple different standpoints. Like one, when I was young, um, and you know, out there just doing my thing, man, um, and and meeting and meeting a lot of women, and you you don't realize, um, you know, I had a uh, you know really loving mother, and um, and the father was kind of you know doing his thing in the streets or whatever. But um, I learned um, the value of 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 people and 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 black women is you know uh, a lot earlier. I would meet a lot of broken women, man. Even you know dating, and it was funny because you know. Um, you wind up being cool with with them, and they and they meet a cool dude, right? And then it's like all of a sudden, oh, this cool this cool dude is, you know, uh, giving me things that I never had before. And then what happens is, they, you know, you start having relationships with people. I started having relationships with people that I didn't really find meaningful, but I was it was meaningful for them, so I hung around, and so I had to start checking myself uh, to say, hey, look, you know. I'm not really adding to the situation, even though I'm not uh, in, you know, what the other people were, but I'm really not helping this person. And I, and I think, you know, in the past, I kind of took advantage of a lot of that. You know what I'm saying? So um, self-actualization is a big thing, right? So me having, you know, three daughters, one grown that I don't actually get to talk to um, because, uh, you know, unfortunately, our mother was, you know, mentally ill and, um, and it was a really toxic thing that I really tried to be in her life, but, um, it was kind of, I was made out to be the bad guy, that type of thing. And, um, you know, and then two daughters and I, my current marriage that I do have close to the vest that are with me. Uh, and it is a challenge, man, because, you know, as a father, uh, trying to, you know, the black man trying to, to navigate, you know, my world and also raising, you know, helping to raise uh, black girls to black women as well, um, you know, is a challenge. But everything starts with, you know, self-esteem and self-actualization. My thing is to just give my daughters the space to be who they want to be creatively, but teaching them the values and accountability, responsibility and discipline and all that type of thing. And just being being a first, you know what I'm saying? Being, you know, I'm not 
one of those dudes that's going to be like, oh, you know, I need to have a shotgun with my daughter because like, look, that ain't going to help, Slim. You're not going to be with them 24-7. You know what I'm saying? You have to teach teach them how to think and think independently and not follow and raise raise them to be leaders. Uh, and that's all my thing is, is just I just teach my daughters to be leaders and to think about everything that they do um, and, and have a reason for doing stuff. Just don't do stuff to do stuff. And, um, and just being there for support and encouragement, you know what I'm saying? And, um, and letting them know that there's nothing going to happen to them that don't happen to me a thousand times first. You know what I'm saying? So as a, as a black man protecting black women, uh, whether it be daughters, wife, or whatever, um, they have to know, our women have to know that we got them. You know what I'm saying? Like for real, for real. There's nothing going to happen to me that doesn't happen to you that hasn't happened to me a thousand times first. So from my perspective, that's what it is. Yes. Thank Great. you so much for sharing that. That was, <laughs> there was a lot of, of gems in there, um, especially I think the action of just sort of like, not just do as I am telling you, but do as I replicate what it is, how I'm living my life. And I think that means a lot. And then building those, those moments, like you said, confidence and self-esteem that help to really develop and make it not easy to misconstrue when something is awry in a relationship yeah. of that sort. Um, and AJ throwback, I know as a, as a father to a young boy, how do you sort of navigate that? Cause I find I'm, I'm a mother to a, a, a young boy who I raise alone as um, I'm a, not just a single mother, but the only parent. So I think it's difficult sometimes with me and having conversations with my son and explaining, right, just what re the relationship dynamics. But how do you explain that as a sort of man, man around how to recognize unhealthy behaviors um, and what that conversation looks like for you? For me, having a boy, um, a lot of it has to do with um, modeling certain behaviors. And if I'm being honest, I haven't always modeled the best behaviors for him. And so a lot of my own process in terms of taking personal responsibility for my actions has been doing the work on myself and undoing a lot of the things that I went through as, you know, not just as a youth, but also an adulthood. And so a lot of that involves me, like, you know, it involves therapy, it involves surrounding myself with better, you know, better people, higher quality people, not people who would lead me into certain bad situations. And so for me, that's the best way that I can teach him how to recognize who's, who's in his corner, who's not in his corner. Whether it's you're talking relationships when it comes to romantic relationships, whether you're talking about friendships, it's about teaching people not only how to treat you, but teaching people how to treat other people by how you treat other people. You know, like he's the first example of like, I'm the first example. I should say I'm the first example of how to treat a woman that he's going to see. And if I, and if he doesn't see it from me first, then he's not going to learn that behavior. So it's on me to model it in front of him so that he can see it for himself. And really that's the best way that I can show Like, I can't just tell it to him. I have to show it to him. You know, it's the whole thing. The game, the game ain't to be, you know, it's the game is to be sold, not to be told, you know, that whole aspect. So that's what doing it. And it's also a matter of um, 
just really just kind of sort of stressing certain things. If I recognize that maybe he's not being treated in a certain way, like there's been instances where he comes home from school. He'll tell us about where somebody might say something to him that's a little cross or that's not right. And one of the biggest things that we try to stress to him, you know, me and my wife, we try to stress to him is speak up for yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't just let certain things slide. Don't just let certain things happen and not tell somebody, whether it's us, you come home and tell us, whether it's you tell your teachers at school, whatever it might be, don't feel like you can't speak up for yourself. Because I mean, a lot of us, you know what I'm saying, kind of sort of think about what Priest was saying earlier, coming from that Generation X thing, the downstream as young Black men is that if you spoke up for yourself, it's for sure, if you had to go tell an adult, you got branded as a tattletale. But the thing is, it's like, <clears throat> if you feel like something is being done and it's unjust, or you might need a little bit extra help or reinforcement to defend yourself, you got to do what you got to do to protect yourself. You know what I'm saying? And to honestly think otherwise, that in and of itself is toxic because it comes from a toxic. So yeah. a lot of it is just breaking breaking a lot of those things that maybe like I was taught in my generation that might not necessarily be beneficial moving forward into right. these younger generations and how, how to raise them. Because a lot of the things that we were taught don't necessarily work now. You know, and you keep, yeah. you keep what works, you get rid of what doesn't, you know? And, and that's really been the biggest thing. Like I, I don't really, I try not to raise my son in the same way that I was raised, you know what I'm saying? And not to say that mm -hmm. my father was like terrible anything like that was a, there were a lot of gems that my dad gave me but there were also a lot of things that he learned from his generation that he the generations that don't work now you know so Absolutely. it's a matter of really just adjusting on the fly yes um devane i i want you you had a comment um all of uh, in in add into responding to what some of aj throwback said too. yeah definitely uh, for, uh to the last thing you said i got raised by my grandparents so i got raised by a generation way past me so i get it 110 percent that, that whole idea of getting lessons and getting raised by completely different uh, ideologies and whatnot i get that 110 percent um there's a lot of, we're going quite over time, but there's a lot of things I definitely could say about, you know, just the, the toxicity of, uh, at least like the male presenting, uh, side of it that we've been talking about for the last, uh, few minutes. Uh, but there's one thing I want to say, uh, to the people who are, are my age and up who may be listening to this or maybe listening to anybody who has opinions about, you know, toxicity from their aspect of the male toxicity or anything where they they believe they may not be it or they want to put the mirror on them or it's like, oh, this is too boring. I don't want to listen to this because it's just people groaning on about stuff I want to listen about. The most arguably prolific hip-hop artists of our current uh, date right now, our lifetime, Kendrick Lamar, just released an album and with the track called Daddy Issues. The, the guy who has pretty much been a very vocal uh, proprietor of the black experience for the last several years just used his platform to say to the greater community, not just males, but the black male community, uh, y'all might need to look in the mirror about what is going on with how you're presenting yourself and where that stems from and where it might be 
coming from, which might be coming from your upbringing, maybe your parents, maybe the people that raised you, maybe the surrounding environments that you had when you were much smaller. You know, if you don't want to listen to people talk to you, maybe you'll listen to somebody put beats over bars and tell you, hey, maybe it's time to slow down and listen. Yes, that, yes, all of that. And I think about the fact that while the lens has been very more male presenting, I think we know that there's all types of relationship formations and and how the cycles of trauma, right? When we talk about some of this embedded trauma from early on, and you think about the fact that, you know, as I talked about as people of color, I was adding in the chat that we are very much a couple of generations away from, you know, a, a historical trauma that we are all linked by and what that means for us and learning things from our past that have just been sort of generated, those generational curses, as you will. But I, I there was someone in the in the that's been viewing and we talked a little about industrial uh, and cultural toxicity, but maybe we can revisit this question on toxicity and academia. And I have a lot of thoughts because I <laughs> navigate um, academia. I feel like there has been so many spaces of that, not just as, as a person of color, as a woman, and um, just kind of in the in the scholarly sort of, I think, just bank or pool of, of what that scholarship looks like. And, you know, oftentimes it's not look like us. Oftentimes it's not look like, you know, um, in a hip hop context, uh, culturally, um, but also just people of color and, and as, as uh, historically excluded um, communities from from academia. So I wonder maybe we can we can kind of close out on on thinking around academia and where or academic spaces overall or even in scholarship um, and scholarly discourse, where does toxicity fall? Um, and I will I will just really in quick just give a short nugget that um, I remember my first uh, day, I believe, at Georgetown and in grad school. And someone, this was the day that it became, I guess, apparent that it was leaked to the news around the ownership of slaves to fund the endowment, which like every uh, institution before the era of like 1900, just about owned slaves. Um, but there was a, a, an active need to sort of hide and suppress that information to the press. And when it came out, it was my first day and my professor was asking me why I was there. Um, because I don't know if he was looking for me to indicate something around, right? Like that this was something that was connected to me. But I, what I will remember sort of people asking for my story. And I remember saying, you know, kind of explaining to, at some point I said at the end of the semester, like I'm, um, you know, kind of the rooted history of trauma. And yet you're asking me why I'm here. And I need to ask you, all of you in this course, why are you here? Because you are, you know, sort of <laughs> your privilege is based on the suppression and ex historical exclusion of my own. And so, you know, just in, in terms of thinking about that, how do you all feel about navigating academic spaces and scholarly spaces because you all have have been in this <laughs> um i wonder maybe we could go around as we close uh let's see does anybody want to start out this conversation yeah i come from academia uh higher and as recently uh you know uh general and then the public space uh i will say with utmost confidence uh it, 
and whether or not people will say this opinion that uh, higher education is built in a way to oppress people who come from poverty backgrounds if they get in. Period. There is no other way around it. I was not in that area of poverty where I got abused like that, but I still got lumped in that system. And there are plenty of other friends, colleagues, peers that got that came from that world, had the opportunity to get into higher education, and then ended up getting leagues of debt and things that they still pay off today. Maybe they can't even pay off until they're dead in the ground to where their counterparts, their their much lighter skin counterparts, got grant after grant after grant after applying and they the people applied to the same things the same exact grants and got denied same things no i insulin thank you for making that a question because no academia is a place that is bred for toxicity in that area and that's just one of many areas that that deals even at the uh the public level you know from k to 12 it's the same way i just got done working a job at a public school for a while where i would go into what they call the student success center and at any one given time and i'm not being hyperbolic about this half of the black student body was in there at any one given time and it was a very small snippet of their entire population but i mean it was about like 85 percent hispanic but i but if you put that into perspective of 2,400 student school, half of the black student body being in that kind of area for what seems to be no reason other than all of them just for profiling says a lot. Yeah, academia has a lot of that toxicity going all up and down through it. Now, I, I wonder, uh, I, I would love for this conversation to keep continuing, but Jay Mills, I'm going to you and Priest, but specifically because I love the fact that you all are uh, connected to historically black universities, uh, our system of 1890s. And do, what does that look like for you both? I mean, do you feel the same sort of level of, of this ex historical exclusion? Um, or what does that toxicity look like in that experience? Uh, first of all, H-U. No. Um. <laughs> Represent, go ahead. Come on. Well, boy, oh see, boy. I'm not going to so I like <laughs> I was looking for him to get <laughs> You know, I used to, woo boy, because <laughs> I'm. You know, we're not. We don't usually talk about this outside of the family. But one thing I will say that I think it extends outside of just Howard University is the need to ritualize and 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 put barriers and keep these barriers and enforce just the worst. It's like you have to pledge to do everything. There's this rite of passage. And instead of, you know, in the case of Howard, you know, building up on the dorms and updating the dorms. And when I went in, in 2003, like we still had to register in person with paper and everybody else. I remember visiting my other friends. They had computer labs and their dorms were all up to date. And we had half work and elevators, but that was part of rite of passage of going to Howard that you were going to have to climb these steps that... You know, it took them getting sued to become ADA compliant to get them to update their buildings because that was just part of the suffrage that went through it. But when you were talking about, like, you know, uh, the, the financial differences, that was one of the things that did kind of humble everyone because you had those folks like we're in a different world. You had the Whitleys whose dorm rooms had all this different stuff, but everybody had to suffer it without air conditioning, mm -hmm. you know. 
whether they were coming from the Caribbean and there was nothing in their room but the sheets for them to sleep on their bed and the one little suitcase of clothes that they was going to repeat until their summer job kicked in and they could start shopping. There, You could see the difference. But because of that struggle, we, we did unite. Um, one of the other troubles that I saw with, with Howard and within this Black institution and within this, the boule, if you will, is the selling out. We, you get to this point, it was only at Howard, I was in, I, I didn't know there were black people who didn't know that they were black. Mm. That confounded me. Like, they didn't see themselves as such. They, they, because they were not uneducated, because they were not poor, because they were not from the ghetto, they didn't know that they were black. I don't know. It was, it was very strange. But, the toxicity of your own, it be your own people that, 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 it, that, oh my goodness, you know, having to fight for African American history classes to be expanded, you know, so that now they're talking about West African and, and, and all, the whole, the whole world from the, our own perspective, you know, there's this upper level of toxicity of academia that calls the Pythagorean theorem such, even though we know that the pyramids are older, why are they giving credit to Greece? Why do they just systematically, why am I learning about Newton when it comes to calculus? And that's an Arabic word. What is happening here? You know, there's that. But then when you take all of that away and you look at what's happening at HBCUs and how we're taking our best and brightest minds and selling them to white businesses, um, auctioning them off. <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible. Sometimes I wonder after my experience, you know, who is really our own worst enemy? Is it us or is it them? That's a valid question. And I say it shouldn't bad. be that close. I shouldn't have to wonder. Yes. Mm. Any, anyone want to follow, follow up on that? Kylie priest, AJ. Yeah, I'll defer because I mean, like the contrary to popular belief, I didn't go to Howard. <laughs> like, like, oh, okay. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> all, my, all my family, all my people. Went you were just stuck at Howard because it's the state of yeah, town. I might as well have gone. I've been in every single uh, uh, then building and doing stuff in generations. You win. You were not enrolled. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't enrolled exactly, exactly. But I've been, I've been in our, some of these our oldest theaters and all this stuff so much and everything. But I did go to Hampton for a year. Um, so, uh, but like I said, I didn't, I didn't graduate from HBCUs when I was there. But a lot of stuff that uh, the Jay is talking about, I experienced the the little time that I was there, and even being around it, like just seeing from the outside uh, a lot of the um, uh, of the contradictions and the. Uh, and the, uh, you know, supposed preparatory work uh, we're supposed to be taught to, being taught to assimilate instead of, you know, taught to lead and find our own because of fear, because of systemic white supremacy and all that. So um, that's my only little two cents. I kind of I kind of went, left out of there and went to the school of hard knocks on the streets, man. And so yes. everything that I did, I kind of did outside of that institution. But and thank I, you I for, for building that institution because I feel like many yeah, of us... Yeah, but I'm all about it. Yeah, all about giving to that education um, as long as it's real. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and if you love something, you hold it accountable. And that's what Jay Jay's love for, for Howard is, is, is holding it accountable as well. Um, like, you know, I was with the um, students when they protested 
for the dorms. I went up there a couple of times, gave a lot, a lot of some dough for the air conditions, affordable air conditions and stuff like that. So I see it. You know what I'm saying? You see it all over the place, man. So um, that's right. We have to hold our, our own accountable, especially for, for being contradictory for, you know, to the younger kids who are coming there for a certain experience, but um, are getting, you know, kind of sidelined and sideswiped and stuff. So. Yes. And, and AJ Throwback, I feel like we have had this conversation so long. Priest, I'm going to say first, Thank you so much for being a bricklayer and an architect in the School of, of Hard Knocks. I feel like structural academia is not just the, you know, kind of formulation that we're talking about. And very much that was an incubator of a lot of, of the Black pool of genius in this city um, in, in current times that you helped to develop and pave for, for many of us. Um, so thank you for that. And AJ Throwback, we have had this conversation so many times offline between the two of us. Um, and, uh, talking about sort of the academic perspective or higher education um, and share a little bit about your thoughts on, on this conversation. So, um, you know, I went to a predominantly white institution in upstate New York, uh, Hobart and Wayne Smith Colleges. And, um, you know, I actually got there, like I, I left school, I barely had like any debt leaving there. You know what I'm saying? I was blessed enough to get a, a scholarship or whatever. But the thing is, when you are, among only 5% black people, African-Americans in at that school, like the school was 88% white, 5% black. So the thing that like me and a lot of other um, brothers and sisters had to go through, they're specifically black men. One of the things that was automatically assumed a lot of times is that if we were there, we were there to play sports. And what's interesting about that is that my second year, I was my my dorm my dorm mate, and he ended up becoming like a good friend of mine. Um, what's interesting is that he played football, but it was a couple of things. It was one, it was a whole thing of he didn't want to just be seen as an athlete because um, I mean he was highly intelligent. One of the biggest reasons he was there wasn't just because he could play sports, but he was just extremely smart. But two, it was also the thing of. Even though he was an athlete, he didn't just want to be seen as a football player. He ended up playing lacrosse and he ended up being like really good at lacrosse. And the thing about our school is that our school is like D1 lacrosse. We're D3 football, but D1 lacrosse. Um, and the thing is, he wanted to he wanted to break certain stigmas when it came to the things that we are able to do. Like we're not just able to play sports. And if we are able to play sports, it's not just basketball. It's not just football. So those are the things, you know, it's just really interesting that he was trying to break the whole thing of being assumed as an athlete or as an athlete that was only good at one or two sports. And I was there to break the whole assumption that, you know, if black men are in these spaces, in, in these PWIs, that we're not just there to play sports. Like <laughs> most of the, the smartest people that I knew, they could play sports, but most of them, most of them were brothers. Most of them were there on stop on academic scholarships, but it's that whole it's the microaggressions, it's the assumptions that all we can do is pick up a football or pick up a basketball, and that's all we can do. You know, so that was the type of things that we had to fight against when we were at that school, especially you know in this part of the country where there are we're there, but we're not like we're not heavily there. You know, what I'm saying you got to go someplace like Rochester or Syracuse to see more of us there. 
you know, and even in those cities, we're not like the vast majority. So it's like we're fighting against regional assumptions and we're also fighting against like all of these kids that are there who are from New England. They're from Vermont. They're from Rhode Island. They're from Connecticut. They're from Massachusetts. If they're from New York, they're from upstate New York. Like, and they have a different way of looking at things in that particular region of the country. So, you know, we had, we had a lot to fight with in terms of a certain level of toxicity of thought or assumption of thought being at the yeah. Oh my goodness. You, you, you got a lot in there too. And I, I was uh, putting in the chat that my my cousin just left Wisconsin last year um, and went to Damas. I mean, he's been playing, you know, for preparing his body for uh, the the pros for his entire life. My uncle retired to be his conditioning uh, person who was like training boxers prior to then. You know, kind of DC put such a focus on. I think like the sports ecosystem here is PG County is basketball county, right? And so he went uh, to Wisconsin and then decided that he was going to decline the draft and you know became went from a running back to a pro fisher. So interesting <laughs> the fact that like where you 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 ended in this conversation i think around like where we're seen in spaces and not seen in spaces and even that being new toxicity around like we are trying to reroute right continue to exclude you from spaces that you should not be in um but this was a, such a healthy discourse and a healthy conversation. Um, and I'm so glad that you all were able to join. And thank you for bringing your, your profound thoughts and thinking and ideation on all the different aspects of toxic relationships and even sort of getting into how it dictates our mental wellness, our safety, um, and the aspects of not just those, you know, intimate uh, romantic relationships, but the professional ones, our family ties, our platonic friendships. So thank you so much again for, for everyone for tuning in. This has been uh, the latest episode of Beautifully Uncomfortable. Um, ain't it beautiful? Um, thank you again for joining and we will be back next month with a, with a new topic. Please stay tuned to Words, Beats, and Life and subscribe if you have not. Hit that button. Stay aware of what we're going to be doing next. But thank you again for everyone for joining and for those great questions. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Have a, for real. Thank you. Have fun. This podcast was produced by Executive Director Mazi Mutafa. Past episodes can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Mixcloud. Words, Beats, and Life podcasts are produced through funding from partner grants and in-kind donations from people like you. Visit wblinc.org donate to make a contribution.